Almost 100 years ago, the American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald published The Great Gatsby, his account of the Roaring Twenties, the decade of economic growth and social change that followed the devastation of World War I. It's a text that powerfully describes a country in flux, but it also captures something deeper and more enduring about American culture. It was very much a work that became timeless precisely because it was so timely. This story called attention to themes that are universal to the ever-changing American experience, and it is widely considered to be one of the greatest works of American literature. It seems to be a story that everyone already knows, even if they've never read the text. And that's one of the most remarkable facts about this novel, is that it's an already read text. It seems to be in our culture as a story that we are familiar with, even if we've never actually set our eyes on the page or listened to the audiobook or even watched a film adaptation. America means something different to everyone. Each generation is presented with its own set of challenges and achievements. The Great Gatsby provides a framework for dealing with these changes while aspiring to the core values this nation was founded on. I don't think that we turn to Gatsby in the 21st century for the same reasons that people did in the 1950s and 60s. But I do think that we still turn to it for some of the lessons that are perennial. Lessons about what it means to be living in this complex, diverse, pluralistic nation, which is far from perfect and always trying to live up to the best ideals that it holds out for itself. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Harvard Kennedy School professor David Allworth to discuss F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. What, what's the story? Um, what is the plot of this book? So the story is about a man named Nick Carraway who travels from the Midwest in the 1920s to enter the bond business. And he gets wrapped up in a milieu of upper class New Yorkers uh, while living in one of uh, two or three important locations in the novel. Uh, he lives in a fashionable but but new, nouveau riche uh, part of New York called West Egg. And he befriends a neighbor named uh, Gatsby, who is in love with a woman who lives uh, just across the water in the older and more established and more refined East Egg of New York. And while he uh, spends, this is Nick, while he spends time in, uh, in his new location, uh, working in the bond business and um, becoming friends with the people around him, he learns from his new neighbor, uh, Gatsby, that Gatsby is in love with uh, Nick, Nick's cousin, with his cousin, uh, Daisy Buchanan, and uh, that Gatsby has a plot to uh, win her back. He had a brief period of time in his life, some years before he met Nick, when he was uh, about to marry Daisy, and it, it didn't work out. And so he set on a course to, uh, to, get, to, get, to get the girl back. 
And in the intervening time, uh, Daisy married another man, uh, really the villain of the novel, uh, named Tom Buchanan, who uh, Gatsby must uh, find a way to eliminate from the picture so that uh, he can be with Daisy. And he tries desperately to do so by hosting these lavish parties and acquiring massive uh, material wealth in an effort to impress her. But uh, it ultimately is unsuccessful. And the novel ends in tragedy with um, a murder-suicide. It's a very, very sad story. And with uh, Nick returning home to the Midwest uh, from, from, where he, from where he came. Why don't you tell us about F. Scott Fitzgerald? Um, what do we know about his life um, how it might have influenced the writing of this work, and what was the context and motivation for him to write this work when he did? I would say that there were probably three forces in his life leading up to the time when he was writing The Great Gatsby that were really important to the composition of the novel. I think the first was his upbringing. He grew up in in proximity to extremely wealthy people. And he himself was middle class as a child, but he also knew a bit about the struggle to maintain prosperity. His father lost a job when he was young and he spent time close to, as I say, extraordinarily wealthy people. The second influence was that he was a, an educated person. He went to a prep school and then to Princeton, and he befriended many literary men of his generation. While attending Princeton, Fitzgerald met Ginevra King, the daughter of a wealthy Chicago stockbroker. Fitzgerald was infatuated with King, and they dated for roughly two years. King's father warned Fitzgerald that, quote, poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. Interactions such as these were common for Fitzgerald, who was surrounded by wealthy people, but was not wealthy himself. King became the inspiration for the character Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. He also enjoyed writing. Uh, At the early part of his life, he spent time writing for the theater, and he would act or star in the plays that he would write. And that gave him some early experience with what it would mean to be a practicing writer and to put words on the page and to focus on the craft of of writing. And then I think the third really important influence for him was the experimentation with form among the highbrow or avant-garde writers of his day. And I think in particular of T.S. Eliot and James Joyce, two writers whom he admired very much. T.S. Eliot and James Joyce were part of the late 19th, early 20th century literary movement known as modernism. Writers of this movement sought to break free from traditional styles and focus on the individual's experience, rather than society as a whole. And so when he sat down to write The Great Gatsby, he wrote in a letter that he was no, no longer going to write what he called the document novel, and he was going to instead experiment with form, to to make a pure experiment with form, as he put it. Fitzgerald was pushing back against conventional realism, which was one of the most popular writing styles at the time. 
It often depicted common, everyday, plausible characters in dense, concrete settings. Writers in this style sometimes use these techniques to diagnose and highlight the ills of society. He looked at this kind of writing and he found it lacking. It's what he called the document novel. He wanted to get away from the representation of social facts in favor of something that I often think of as subjunctive realism rather than conventional realism. And that term is a term that I derived from just reading the text carefully. If you pay attention to Fitzgerald's sentences, you'll see that he often writes in the subjunctive mood. So instead of saying something in the declarative mood, he'll use a hypothetical or an if-then construction to suggest that something is dreamlike or possible rather than actual. And I think you can extend that kind of writing all the way from the sentence level to the level of the narrative strategy as a whole, to the kind of realism he was seeking. It's a realism that isn't always faithful to social facts, and that isn't always plausible, that has all sorts of discrepancies and weird elements in it. And I think he was pretty invested in exploring the outer edges of realism, what would make something still feel to us as readers like a plausible, interesting narrative account. So not science fiction, not fantasy, not horror, of course, but that would press those edges and that would start to deviate into territory that is a little bit more dreamlike and a little bit more subjunctive. I think Fitzgerald was, was trying at his, at his best to reconcile the virtues of intricate, complex, lyrical poetry or epic poetry or modernist poetry, the kind of writing that he saw exemplified in T.S. Eliot with the virtues of good narrative storytelling. And that is one of the reasons why this novel that we love so much deviates at times from conventional realism and becomes such an intricately patterned, impressionistic, symbolic tale. Let's now focus on what happened when it was published. Um, how was it received? How was it read? Um, and um, you know what kind of what kind of impact did it have? There is an intervening force in the form of Fitzgerald's editor Maxwell Perkins at Scribner. Perkins received a first draft of the novel from Fitzgerald in 1924, and he offered a set of criticisms that turned out to be really incisive and that changed the course of literary history. The two most important criticisms in this famous letter that Perkins wrote to Fitzgerald are, number one, Gatsby the main character is vague. And Perkins longed for Gatsby to be rendered more concretely, to be given more of a physical lifelikeness. He recognized that it was important for Gatsby to be mysterious, but he didn't want Gatsby to be utterly inscrutable or difficult to picture in the mind's eye of the reader. The second criticism that he made was that he, he, Fitzgerald, should not let Gatsby take over the narrative in the latter portion of the novel. He should continue to have Nick 
perform the narration because Nick's narrative stance is what contributed to the powerful irony of the text. He suggested that, as, as Perkins puts it, Fitzgerald had exactly the right method of telling it. And what he meant was that he created this narrator who's simultaneously a participant and an observer, and at one point in the novel comes to stand in as a kind of author figure, as a surrogate for the author. And this method of telling it, according to Perkins, enabled Nick to have a slightly distanced vantage point on the actions and interactions among the characters, which would have been eliminated if Gatsby himself were given the voice of the narration. Fitzgerald got to work incorporating Perkins' edits. He extensively revised the novel and within a year published The Great Gatsby as we know it today. When the novel appeared, it was basically well-received. It's not true that it failed. Uh, I think people think it wasn't successful, but looking back at that moment when it was published, I think we can say that many of the most important figures in the literary arts of the day recognized that Fitzgerald had achieved something significant. And for Fitzgerald himself, he was really pleased that many of his friends and many of the writers that he admired, such as Eliot, really appreciated his work. Eliot wrote to him and said that this was the first step that American fiction had taken since Henry James. The novel sold modestly, not incredibly well, but it sold modestly and it set Fitzgerald up to have a writing career and to become an important figure in the culture. It then started to fall out of favor in the 1930s and by the time of Fitzgerald's death in 1940, remainders were sitting on the shelf. It was not a popular novel. But then there was a resurrection uh, in 1945, uh, or in the, in the early 1940s, when a series of uh, publications came out celebrating Fitzgerald's life, uh, some of which were organized by his literary friends. And this led to serious scholarly consideration of the book and a first wave of academic criticism, which established the novel in the university and uh, secondary school canon. The letter from Maxwell Perkins did those suggestions lead to a different style um, of literature that became picked up by others? He encouraged Fitzgerald to, to continue working with what we now look back on and call the observer hero narrative and to continue to play with this structure of Nick and Gatsby as two parts of a single protagonist. And that generates a lot of the novel's effects. We see this throughout American literature. Of course, Ishmael and Ahab is the first example uh, that comes to mind when you think of great American works. He also, I think, recognized that Fitzgerald had found a way out of the confines of the document novel, of conventional realism. He suggested that Fitzgerald had done something with form and style that was truly new and innovative in American fiction. And as I said earlier, I think that that innovation is this subjunctive realism. It's this effort to 
see what's right at the edge of convention, conventional realism, to, to see how far you can push a realist narrative without venturing into the territory of fantasy or some other literary genre. Are there some other texts that followed that you see a kind of direct lineage to? It's difficult to name any specific texts that are direct descendants of The Great Gatsby because so much of American cultural production is a descendant of The Great Gatsby. And the novel has been so important as a source for adaptation. The Great Gatsby has been adapted for several films, a ballet, and even a video game. Over the years, it has made its way into the educational world and is taught in schools nationwide. I think that The Great Gatsby has probably had the most profound influence in the secondary school curriculum. And I think that's one of the most important, one of the most important spaces of influence for it, even more uh, important than, uh, than within, within literary history per se. And that's partly because I think it seems a lot simpler and more straightforward than it actually is. And it was eclipsed by the extraordinarily difficult and, and strenuously experimental works of Faulkner and Joyce and the other modernists, Stein. So that's one reason why I tend to think that it has been less influential in high literary culture than among readers outside of the academy and outside of elite institutions. What, what are the most important themes that this book engages with that, in your mind, marks a difference or at least marks a kind of superlative example of that engagement? I think one of the first important themes of this novel is this idea of self-invention, this idea that you can invent yourself by your own agency at any moment, that all it takes is a what Nick at one point calls a platonic conception of oneself to realize a new identity. That's a key theme. A second key theme is this close relationship between individual entrepreneurial striving and the fate or destiny of the nation. So much of what Gatsby experiences functions as a kind of allegory for what America had experienced up to that point and in many ways would experience through the 20th and 21st century. A third theme, I think, is the idea that America is an unfinished project in which different groups of people defined by race, by ethnicity, by class, by gender, are negotiating how to live together and how to work together in a society that is imperfect. It does seem that the reason this book has endured and, and has such cultural force is because it helped America to understand itself in this changing time. And those changes, so many of them remain with us. They remain relevant changes. You know, the American dream 
was not there in 1492 or 1776 the way we think about it. I mean, this book, it's both, it's a description of a powerful American dream and also a deep critique of it. So maybe you could talk about that kind of whole set of, of cultural ideals that remain powerful for many, you know, many native-born Americans and, of course, many immigrants who come here seeking those same possibilities. So one of the reasons that The Great Gatsby is still useful as a pedagogical resource, a book that you can teach in multiple different contexts, is that it surfaces all of these tensions and ambiguities and ironies inherent in the idea of the American dream without actually resolving them. So it becomes a text that allows you to keep asking the question, what is the American dream? What America do we mean when we say American dream? What's dreamlike in that phrase? What makes it dreamlike rather than real? What would make it more real and for whom? So the novel has a, a sort of profound way of getting you to keep asking that question both because it explicitly raises it in the final passage when Nick is imagining the first settlers who encountered the new world and speaking of it as a green breast that is there for them to conquer. He, he simultaneously manages to offer a pretty scathing criticism of that fantasy and to show us how immensely powerful that experience must have been for those individuals arriving to the quote-unquote new world. He says that finally, and here I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the exact quote, but he says something to the effect of that, something to the effect of the individuals who encountered the quote-unquote new world finally saw something that was commensurate for man's capacity to wonder. So he's invoking this idea that the imagination and the human spirit is immense and powerful. And finally, the landscape, the earth, the material world had given them a canvas that would be large enough for their manifest destiny. And what remains really powerful for me about that ending and about the novel as a whole is, again, how it surfaces all the tensions and ambiguities and problems inherent in that experience without ever resolving them. And it forces us to a kind of relentless questioning about what it meant, what it means to think of America as the new world and what it meant and what it means to inhabit something called the American dream. And in a sense, this links back to the formal structure of the text, right? So the text is so intensely obsessed with the question of whether or not one can repeat the past. There's this amazing scene where Nick and Gatsby are talking about the past and Nick says, you can't repeat the past. And Gatsby is incorrigible. He says, uh, you can't repeat the past. Of course you can. Why? Of course you can, old sport. And the novel has a way of simultaneously showing us that impossibility of repeating the past and forcing us to keep repeating it by raising these questions that we have to keep confronting and by giving us a text that is 
again, so intricately patterned that, that unfolds through symbols that recur, that causes us as readers to have to keep revisiting what we've read to make sense of how a certain narrative logic may change through the repetition of one symbol after another. So I think of all of these questions of theme and these big issues having to do with the American dream as pretty intricately tied up with the formal structure of the text, which, as I say, wants to make you experience the impossibility of repeating yourself or repeating the past while also throwing you into an endless desire to do so. A lot of the tension of the book is about class and about money and about um, essentially the contradictions of the story America tells itself about meritocracy, a natural aristocracy, um, and you know, basically who gets to rule, who gets to lead. I mean, how, how do you read its message of class? And do you find those, those kind of, do you, do you find those lessons still quite relevant? Certainly they're relevant. The novel comes as close as any work of art can to arguing that there is a caste system in the United States of America, that there is an aristocracy, that there is such a thing as class in a so-called classless society. And I think that that was something that Fitzgerald deliberately wanted to expose. But at the same time, he, just as you're saying, wanted to be clear about what's exciting about being an entrepreneur or a self-made man or a success or wealthy or all of the above. He doesn't simply write a screed against capitalism. He tries to unpack all of the emotional and social and cultural forces that come together in an advanced capitalist society. As the society evolved, so did the Great Gatsby's place in it. It makes sense that it would fall out of favor in the 1930s during a period of recession or depression. And then it would come back into favor during a period of affluence and mass consumption. The, the period between 1945 and 1975 is a period in the United States when just like after World War I, the nation in many ways felt superior to other nations when there was economic prosperity for not for all, certainly not for all, but for many, there was a rising middle class. There was a sense of relief from having uh, ended the war. And it makes sense in that regard that the great Gatsby would find a place in that America, just as it did in 1920s America. Part of this book's relevance comes from its allegorical themes and characters, including Gatsby himself. Gatsby represents the American dream in all of its complexity. He represents a figure who comes from poverty and achieves success. He also represents a figure who invents himself, changes his name, and gives himself, in a sense, his own baptism. 
he represents uh, a figure who is embedded with the criminal underworld, but also with the aristocracy. He represents a figure who is trying desperately to be accepted by the moneyed elite, but who never quite attains the level of acceptance and inclusion that he seeks for himself. He represents someone who knows about hard work and who does work incredibly hard to achieve his goals. And he also represents the experiences of striving and failure and striving again that I think constitutes so much about the myth that we tell ourselves about the self-made American figure and the nation as a nation that is in some sense always striving to perfect itself. I mean, we're famously a frontier nation where there's always new possibilities for glory or riches. And as I think about it really for the first time, part of the reason why fantasy and myth and and dream is so compelling is because that that precisely is the frontier for our imaginations. It's to become Elon Musk, to become Steve Jobs, to become you know any great uh, kind of magnetic figure. It's really interesting that you mentioned someone like Steve Jobs who helped to pioneer the digital frontier that we all experience today. And I do wonder sometimes what Fitzgerald would think about the cultures of capitalism in the 21st century and about the idea of the American dream is now somehow extending beyond the geographical place, beyond the westward expansion into the frontier as traditionally understood and into virtual space, into the digital realm. How did The Great Gatsby change the world? The Great Gatsby defined America for all of us. The Great Gatsby gave us, whether we've read the novel or not, an indelible sense of what America is and how America looks and who America is for. And The Great Gatsby did so in a profoundly ambivalent way, which forces us as readers and thinkers to constantly question what we take America to be. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.